everyone. Welcome and thank you for listening to MSAA's podcast, Young Adults Living with Multiple Sclerosis. I'm Jahaira Rivera, Director of Mission Delivery and Program Development for MSAA and your host for today's program. Please note that this program is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute any formal recommendations. Please speak with your doctor or healthcare provider if you have any questions or concerns. Today's program is part of MSAA's 2023 MS Awareness Month campaign on life with MS, different stages of the journey, spotlighting the topic of young adults and MS, which is very important to learn to live your best life with multiple sclerosis as a young adult. I am honored to welcome our guest speaker, Dr. Nuriel Mogavim, who will be sharing with us his insights and tips for young adults living with multiple sclerosis and for those newly diagnosed. Dr. Mogavim is a neurologist and MS fellow at Keck School of Medicine at USC in Los Angeles, California, where he was born and raised. He completed his medical school at residency at Stanford University School of Medicine. He is experienced in health policy, healthcare outcomes research, healthcare quality and social media and medical ethics. His clinical interest focuses on neuroimmunology and multiple sclerosis, and his research and advocacy efforts both concentrate on improving access to care and lowering drug costs. Dr. Mogavin, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing your expertise. Thank you, Jahaira, and thank you um, to the MSAA for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. So we know that young adulthood is fundamentally a period of maturation, decision-making, lots of changes, independence, and major life events. And this is usually the time when we are choosing our career pathways and joining the workforce, traveling, and perhaps even having a family and thinking about parenting. But we also know that this is the age range when multiple sclerosis is more likely to strike. MS is the leading cause of disability in young adults. With that said, let's talk about the diagnosis. How is MS diagnosed? And what happens when someone is diagnosed or is actually living already with multiple sclerosis as a young adult? Yeah, you know, I think it's an excellent question. You know, the the piece you touched on there is important. You know, we know that MS is most likely to be diagnosed in someone's 20s or 30s for the most part. And um, in some ways that makes it even more challenging because that's such an important period in our lives, at least modern society, in terms of figuring out our planning for, for the rest of our course. So um, not only is the diagnosis really um, difficult because of the time it comes in our lives, but I also just kind of want to validate anyone out there who's, who's been through the process with diagnosed, being diagnosed or maybe is through it now. Um, it's an incredibly, it can be a very frustrating process itself to get diagnosed. And then we'll talk a little bit about what happens after. But, um, you know, I think that the first part that's very difficult is to even figure out whether you should be thinking about getting yourself attention for MS. You know, the symptoms that are ascribed to MS, um, they can be very, very different between different people. Um, they can sometimes be very non-obvious. They can sometimes be quite subtle. They can especially be non-obvious to people around you. A lot of the times the symptoms are only things that you would notice, um, whether it's a feeling of numbness or whether it's a feeling of pain or vision loss. You know, these are things where it's really going to be dependent on you. And uh, there's no 
highly, highly specific symptom for MS. There's no specific thing like, yeah, if it hurts in this one spot in your knee, that's MS. Like that, we, we don't have that. And so um, it can be very difficult sometimes to even know whether or not you should consider it. And then I think on top of that, you know, when you try to get medical attention, other people might not take it seriously too, you know? So we know, you know, based on research, you know, who are the people that are most likely to be dismissed um, medically? And they do tend to be younger people. They tend to be women. They tend to be people of color. And so, you know, if when we're talking about the people who are most likely to have MS, who are generally young women, and we're understanding more and more that communities of color have high risk of MS, you're also potentially dealing with, even if you know you think you might be on the radar for having MS, you might have to struggle to get attention. So I think this this is one of the first pieces of frustration is even getting there. Um, but then the process of, let's say you do get to a doctor and they do suspect MS, getting to a diagnosis itself can sometimes be a little bit tough. Again, we don't have that specific test for MS. It's, you know, we don't have a, a blood test where it tells you up and down whether you have MS. So, you know, what we have is a series of, you know, we take your history and we really try to understand your story. We do some MRIs. We might do a spinal tap, but all of these things are meant to sort of increase the probability that we have the right diagnosis. And, you know, I think to be in this process, you know, I've never been diagnosed with them. I can't imagine how frustrating and scary it must be because this takes a really long time. But I think, you know, something that's really important is that this is a really critical period when we're working on getting diagnosis because there's, there's a few ways it could go wrong. You know, for one, let's say you do have MS. But the process of getting there to diagnosis is wrong and you end up getting diagnosis not having MS. Well, obviously, that has very clear dangers. So you want to make sure you get it right and do it the right way. But there's actually another, you know, another challenge, too, which is what if you don't have MS but get misdiagnosed with it? And I think that also happens. You know, I, I see patients not infrequently who are maybe 40 or 50 who have been living with MS under, you know, under their understandings that they've had MS for 20 or 30 years. And that's meant medications and time at the doctors and great expense, life changes. And they switch doctors for whatever reason. They come to us and we're looking at their MRIs and listening to their story. And boy, it doesn't sound like MS. It sounds like something else. And that conversation is really hard um, because this person maybe took medications unnecessarily for a long time. Their identity formed around it. It, it becomes a hard challenge. So the process of diagnose, getting diagnosed can take weeks or months. And that can be really scary. But it is an important to get right. Uh, because then once you do get MS, you know, once you're diagnosed, we, we have to then talk about, okay, well, what's going to be the next steps for you? And, um, you know, I think particularly when people are at this period of their lives where they're planning, they're thinking ahead, they're having big dreams. Sometimes a diagnosis of MS can feel like you have to stop dreaming or like you have to stop planning. And, um, you know, nothing could be farther from the truth today. And I think that that's one of the really big things um, early on, if you're a young person and, and, you know, it's a possibility you might have MS or you've just been diagnosed is, you know, it's going to take some, some adjustment, you know, things are going to be different for you, but I think, and we're going to come back to this, I think later in this conversation, but um, you don't need to change your dreams. You know, we're lucky in this era to have a lot of treatments that work and a lot of better scientific understanding, but, you know, I think the number one step is to say, okay, this is real. We have to confront this um, uh, because there's certainly people who it's such a scary con you know, idea that they might not come back to a doctor for a few years until they really need it. And so really accepting that it's real and it's in your power to actually control this disease is really, really important early on. Um, 
you know, my two big tips early on are one is keep dreaming. And the other one is to bring in an ally or a friend or a family member, you know, have somebody that you're going to trust in this journey and bring them with you to doctor's appointments, especially early on, because you might be a little overwhelmed by everything. Um, you might have um, a little bit of trouble hearing what people are saying when you've been hit with shocking news. Um, and that's normal. And so to have a family member or a friend with you who knows you well and can be there to think good questions can sometimes be really valuable early on. Um, so anyway, you, it was a good question. You know, what do you do when you're first diagnosed? How do you get there? What's the process and what comes first? But, you know, I think in summary, it's going to be a little bit frustrating to get to diagnosis for most people. You know, try, try your best to have patience with it if you can. Continue to advocate for yourself if there's delays that are unnecessary. But everyone's goal is to get to the right diagnosis. And then once you are to recognize that, um, great, now you're in the driver's seat and you get to sort of control the rest of your life goes. Thank you for your input and important information. Research has shown that MS is sometimes described in stages. A young adult may naturally advance from one MS type to another, which leads us to our next topic. Knowing the stages can help with understanding and managing MS. What are the stages or types of MS progression and why it is important for us to know this? So, you know, we typically put MS into a few different types of disease types. Um, so, you know, and you can think about these on the spectrum of the development of the, of the disease of MS. And so really kind of starting at the beginning would be something called RIS, which is radiologically isolated syndrome. And these are people who actually, if you have RIS, you have typically no symptoms, no symptoms attributed to MS. You have any numbness, weakness, balance problems, bladder problems, nothing. The only reason you're even in this conversation is because typically you've had a brain scan for some other reason. You know, whether you had a head injury from skiing or you have migraines and got a head scan. Um, but that MRI looked all the world like the MRI of somebody who has MS. And we've known about people who have what we call RIS, these scans that look like MS with no symptoms for pretty much as long as we've had MRIs for MS. And what's interesting about this category of individuals is many live their entire lives totally normally with no symptoms of MS, and they never develop anything clinically. They just have MRIs that look like it. And so this, if you have RIS, it's in a, you're in a difficult position. It can be quite frustrating and scary because some percentage of these people do end up developing the symptoms of MS. Um, and these are typically people who are diagnosed with RIS at a younger age or have spinal cord lesions or have um, spinal fluid that shows inflammation. So that's sort of what we might think of as, as one of the first earliest stages, you know, almost like we're picking it up before it's manifested. The next category is what we call CIS, clinically isolated syndrome. And this one I think is, in, is most useful to understand as it relates to multiple sclerosis. So the M in multiple sclerosis is critical. It's multiple. This is a process where you've had multiple attacks. It's chronic. You're going to have potentially inflammation, you know, for the rest of your life. But CIS is for people who have had an attack. But it's not clear that this is going to be a chronic process. It's just a single solitary attack. And this happens for some folks. They have a single episode of optic neuritis. They have a single episode of a spinal cord attack that looks and smells and feels like MS, but they have no other signs of inflammation. They don't have any evidence on their MRIs of any prior attacks. They've never had experience of a prior attack. 
And again, if you follow people who have CIS for 15 years, some percentage of them never develop MS. They had the one-time attack and never again. And so what we try to do is try to predict, okay, who's more likely to develop MS? Have a second attack in this group because if you have CIS, your goal is to prevent this from ever developing a second attack from developing MS. And so, you know, in a conversation with your provider, with your MS doc, you know, you can talk about being on treatments if you have CIS, especially if you have some of the risk factors for developing MS later, which again, it's the number of lesions on your scan, whether your spinal fluid looks like it has inflammation or your age, but this is both RIS and MS. You can almost think of as some people call it like pre-MS. You know, I don't love that because it's probably also in the same, same family, but in some ways you haven't yet shown that this is a chronic disease. And so maybe you don't need to be on, you know, these kind of heavy duty MS treatments, but then you have the category of MS and, and in MS, I think there's three main types to discuss. So one is the most common type that most people are in and that most young people especially will be in, which is relapsing remitting MS. And in relapsing, remitting MS, you have these attacks, these are the relapses, and then you have some improvement. That's the remitting part. And especially when you're young, you might get back to 100% of your baseline, like it never happened, or 90% or 80%. But typically, these attacks, which get better over the course of weeks, usually, and they, you know, in the era before treatments, they might happen twice a year, or once a year. And then between that, nothing. This is what's typical of what we call the relapsing remitting phase of disease. And, and most medications for MS that come out are specifically focused on this, on relapses. Medications we have these days are really good at stopping relapses. And so you can often get on a medication early in your life that cuts your relapses to zero, which is great news. The next type of MS then to think about that naturally flows out of people who have relapsing remitting MS is called secondary progressive MS. So it's secondary because it comes after the relapsing phase. And this might be people who previously had relapsing disease, but are maybe in their 40s or 50s. And what they're noticing now is that things are, there's no relapses anymore, or if they happen, they're rare. But things are just sort of getting slowly harder every year. It's a little bit harder to walk. The balance is a little bit worse every year. The strength in your right arm is a little bit worse every year. And so this is you know, what we call relapse-independent progression, meaning things are just a little bit harder. There's still some neurodegeneration happening. And again, in secondary progressive MS, it's after the relapsing phase. And if you're in the relapsing phase, it's we think around 50% of people develop secondary progressive MS. 50% of people have the relapsing phase. The relapses will stop. And then actually, things sort of just stay stable. So they might still have, you might still have residual effects of your old attacks, but... Um, you don't develop worse disability over time. The last group is what we call primary progressive MS. So these are folks who they develop MS without any relapses ever. All they have is that slow worsening over time, a little bit worse, a little bit worse every year. You know, the treatments we have for MS, like I mentioned, they're really good for the relapsing parts of the disease. The, there are medications for progressive MS, including secondary progressive MS, they don't work quite as well as the relapsing ones. And this is a, a major area for future research is how can we get better at treating the progressive phase of the disease? And again, all of this is a framework. And, and one of the things we're understanding over time is there might even be some progressive progression very slowly during the relapsing part of the disease early on. And it just doesn't become obvious until later. So we're still understanding more and more about MS. But really the key in understanding progression stages where you are 
is, you know, are you somebody who has RIS, which is quite special and, you know, maybe you don't have any symptoms and you just got to monitor it over time. CIS, where you've had one attack and you're really having to make some decisions with your provider about whether or not to start treatment because you're likely to have more. Maybe you have MS and it just, you haven't had your second attack yet. Or are you in MS? Clearly, this is a chronic process that has multiple periods. And if so, what, port, what, what point in the disease process are you in? Are you relapsing? Are you progressing? And that's key because then that tells you what medications might make most sense for you. Thank you, Dr. Mogavin, for providing us with a reliable, easy-to-digest explanation. We know that multiple sclerosis is a complex concept to understand, and you made it easy for all of us. And that's now a perfect segue is our next discussion about treatments. How is MS treated? And how can someone choose the best treatment for them? Yeah. So sometimes I tell my patients that when we live in 2023, it's it's great news, but it's not great news. Meaning it's great news because compared to the 80s or the 90s, I mean, we have more than 20 treatments for MS. I mean, you have tremendous choice as an individual in terms of what treatment you want to be on, the side effect profile, how it's administered and when. We'll talk about that in a second. But it's bad news because we're not 10 years into the future from now, where we'll have even more choices. We might be closer to a cure. And so in some respects, we're working with what we got. None of the treatments we have are perfect. Um, but what we have is actually pretty, pretty good. Um, you know, so I think there's a few keys as you think about your treatment decisions. And one of them is knowing you're not committing to anything for life because 10 years from now, who knows what we'll have. But um, I think it really requires you to sort of sit down with yourself and figure out what your priorities are or what you need at this point in your life, which I'll tell you in my twenties, I didn't really know what my priorities were. So this is obviously challenging the younger you are, but you know, I think a few things are, are good to think about. So one is, um, what works within your lifestyle in terms of taking your medication? So the key to all of these MS medications is they work only as well as you take them. So, you know, the medications come in generally three forms, infusion-based therapies, you go to an infusion center or they come to your home, stick an IV in once a month, once every six months, depending on what you pick. And then after that, you don't have to think about your treatment for the rest of the month or the rest of the year, you know? So that's one option. There's another option that are pills and there's daily pill or twice daily pill options. Some people are great with pills. They remember to take them every day or twice a day and they never forget. I will tell you, let's say I needed to do that. I would have trouble remembering. If you know, honestly, deep in your heart, you'd have trouble remembering, you know, you can pick a different option, but it's good to just know truly about yourself what works best. And some people find the pill option great because you don't need to take a day off of childcare or a day off of work or a day off of whatever to go get your infusion or whatever. So sometimes the oral medications are great from a lifestyle perspective too, because you don't need to take a day off. If you live somewhere quite rural, you don't need to travel to get your infusions or other treatments. So, you know, knowing these things about your lifestyle are important. And then the last category are injection-based therapies. And these include um, some of the older medications that are daily or a few times a week, or newer medications, which are just once a month, self-injections. So some people love this as well because it's totally in their control. They can do the self-injection. They don't have to go somewhere. Some people hate needles and they do not want to, under any circumstances, give themselves an injection. And that's 
totally fine. Because again, we live in 2023. If you don't want to give yourself an injection, you have plenty of other options. So I think for one, knowing what's the most likely thing that you will commit to is really key. Um, another part of that, by the way, too, is some treatments for MS. If you stop taking them, they can actually result in what we call rebound attacks, where you have an attack after you stop the medication that can be quite severe. So this is true of um, medications like natalizumab, which is Tysabri, or the NP modulator class, which includes things like saponamod, which is mazent, or fingolimod, which is gelenia. So in those cases in particular, you want to make sure that there's nothing that would interrupt your treatment. So that's piece one is your lifestyle and what's going to work for you. The second part, um, I think particularly for people who are planning on potentially wanting to give birth in the next even, you know, zero to five years is to think about family planning. Um, there's some medications which for MS, which you should absolutely not take if you're going to get pregnant. Um, there's some uh, medications that have been proven safe in pregnancy. And then there's some medications where you can come up with a pregnancy strategy. So for instance, if you're on a B cell um, depletion agent, so something like rituximab, um, ocrelizumab, which is ocrevus, or ofatumumab, which is casimta, um, those medications can actually be given in such a way that you get the treatment, aim for conception a few months later, and then actually have a safe pregnancy. So planning ahead and thinking, you know, if I want to potentially get pregnant in three years, maybe I start now on a treatment that's safe in pregnancy. So thinking a little bit ahead about family planning is important. If you're younger and you're like, you know, you're not going to have kids for another 10 years, you might be able to make your decision for medications without doing family planning considerations because you can always switch later. So that's one piece I think is particularly important early on too, because once, if you know you want to get pregnant in the next few years, it actually really limits what's, what we would pick. Um, so I think that fits into that question about life plans and lifestyle, et cetera. And then probably the last thing to consider is, is what's your risk tolerance? This is another question that comes down to like truly knowing yourself, but you know, how willing are you going to be to take on some side effects? You know, this comes back to the thing about 2023 is not the best time. 10 years from now will be better because right now the medications we have available to treat MS, for the most part, the highest efficacy medications, meaning the ones that work the best for stopping attacks, are also the ones with the most side effects. The ones that have the least side effects are typically the ones that are of somewhat lower efficacy. And so... It's not a perfectly linear relationship, but mostly. So the most highly effective medications that we know cut relapses by 90%. They tend to have the highest side effects of infections or other kinds of side effects, whereas medications that might cut relapses by 50% have no really significant side effects. They can be the injection-based therapies where you have some irritation at the injection site or um, you know, you might have some flu-like symptoms where you take Tylenol for it, which are more mild side effects, not that they're not uncomfortable. But understanding, you know, if you're like, hey, you know what, I'm willing to take on the risk of a UTI or pneumonia or, um, you know, you know, some higher, some medications, for instance, have a slightly higher risk of cancer even. Am I willing to take on that risk, which can be small? to prevent MS-related disability in the future. Some people 
we have a we have a great conversation about all the options and they 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 just want the medication that gives them no side effects. They're willing to incur the risk that MS will add somewhat to their disability, but um, they just don't want to have any medication related side effects. And that's a personal choice. And some people are on the other side where they're willing to take on a very high risk of side effects to avoid having MS related changes. So understanding for yourself what the trade-off is in your life, I think is also really important there. Um, so know yourself, know what your priorities are, what medication you're likely to take, what side effects are you willing to deal with? Um, and then a little bit of a side conversation for those who are thinking about having um, kids in the next several years is what's going to make sense in terms of pregnancy planning. Thank you for that. So definitely it's a very, very personal um, choice. And having those conversations with their provider and sharing their personal goals and their lifestyles will definitely help to, to choose what works best for them, right? Um, and what about the prognosis? Could you tell us more about the prognosis and can you live a full life with multiple sclerosis? Yeah. So can you live a full life? Yes. Um, I think that's a deeply, deeply, deeply something I believe and something that um, I know that um, most of my patients agree with is you can live a full life. Um, you know, I think the question we sometimes get is, okay, well, how about my life expectancy? How long can I live with MS? And this is such a, uh, um, such a great question because, you know, if you look historically, the life expectancy for people who live with MS was between five and 10 years shorter than the general population. Meaning the general population's life expectancy is somewhere in the low 80s and people living with MS life expectancy was in the mid 70s. However, that's based on people who are in their 70s living with MS, meaning these were people who were diagnosed in the 1950s. These were people who, you know, lived the first 20, 30, 40 years of their lives without treatments because we didn't develop treatments for MS until the 90s and really until the 1000s. And so what we're actually seeing in the data as, as more and more research is done is that that life expectancy gap, that five to 10 years is narrowing very quickly. Um, if you, when you got diagnosed with MS, had this moment of this image of your mind of somebody who lives with MS, you know, that image invariably was, not invariably, for the most part, people who did grow up in the 1950s and 60s and who are still living with MS today do often have very high levels of disability because they were untreated for so much of that process. And the image might be someone who's having trouble walking or not able to take care of themselves when they're older. But I, I think for people who are young and are newly diagnosed today, I think something that's so important to keep in mind is we don't even know yet how good people are going to look when they turn 60 or 70 who are diagnosed today. And um, I would not be surprised if that life expectancy gap closes. Um, I would not be survived if we understand that by starting treatments really early for people, we actually prevent a lot of the long-term disability. You know, I, again, we don't have cures. We can't take the disease away. People will still have symptoms as they get older. We're going to talk about lifestyle changes you can do to try to improve your, your well-being long-term. But I think a key piece here is life expectancy. Man, I wouldn't think about it. Like, I think in all likelihood, the life expectancy is likely to be quite similar to the general population. And really the question about living a full life, we can talk about this philosophically, but it's really about where do you draw your happiness and meaning from? You know, if you are able to fill your life with meaningful work, 
and uh, relationships, that's really going to be the key to living a full life. And there is absolutely no reason MS can can hold you from that. Um, and so, you know, yeah, it's going to be a reality of your life. You're going to have to see doctors more than you would probably like to. You're going to have to be on medicines more than you would like to. You will probably have side effects that you otherwise wouldn't have to have. It's not that this is no burden, but your potential to live a full, happy and meaningful life is still very, very much there. And so, you know, to that point about living, you know, through your lifespan, what do you have to think about? Let's say you're 20 or 30 getting diagnosed. What does life look like at 50 or 60? You know, a few things there. One, um, there is a medication for MS that is totally free that treats your fatigue, your depression, anxiety, osteoporosis, strength, walking, and it's exercise and staying active. And um, I know how annoying it is when doctors tell you to just stay active. Um, and this is totally one of those do as I say, not as I do things, because I need to be more active too. So I know, you know, how hard it can be to get motivated to get into a good routine of exercise, you know, especially when you have, you know, bad MS related fatigue um, or depression that keeps you, you know, it gives you trouble with motivation to even get out there. But I will tell you early on, if you are not somebody who's, who's active, even if you're fit, <laughs> if you're not somebody who's active, develop an activity routine for yourself, because that's going to be the thing that's going to pay off dividends when not only in, in your younger life, again, because it does so much good benefit for fatigue and depression, anxiety, but when you're 50, 60, 70, the people I see that are doing really well at that age are people who have been active through their lives, whether it's yoga, dance, running, you know, whatever it is, cycling. You know, I have a patient, um, uh, we have a patient in our clinic who um, is, I believe he's in his either late 50s or early 60s. And it's not like he doesn't have symptoms. One of his legs is pretty weak, but he biked across the country. He biked from California to Massachusetts. And not that everyone can do that. I can't do that. But um, but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about is like, you know, for folks who develop a, a pattern and a routine of activity, they are able to do more, you know, as their life goes on. So, you know, treat yourself well early in your life, develop those, those habits and routines because those will pay off, you know, things that we also know for the long term are important. And this is that stuff you hear all the time. We know how bad smoking tobacco is for MS. It will worsen your brain lesions. Um, it will lead to more disability over time. If you are smoking, this is another reason to really, really try your hardest to, to stop smoking because it does make MS and inflammation worse. Other things we know that make MS worse, high blood pressure, hypertension, diabetes. So all that stuff you've been hearing your whole life about chronic diseases and your heart health, it's actually true for MS and your brain health too. So if you have other conditions, especially cardiovascular issues, Make sure you have a good relationship with a primary care doctor and you're treating those because they're important not just for your heart, but also for your brain and your MS. Um, likewise, anxiety and stress, sometimes harder to control than high blood pressure. Um, again, exercise is really key, but other things like meditative practices. There's a really great study. It was done a few years ago. They took a group of people living with MS and split them into two groups. One group... Um, was enrolled in like a stress management, I think it was virtual actual um, meditation kind of practice. And the other half wasn't. And then they looked at their brain scans several, I think it was two years later. And the group that was 
randomized to stress intervention actually had fewer brain lesions accumulate over time, which we don't think about how powerful stress can be. But, um, you know, and, and maybe, hey, people who are lower, you know, had lower levels of stress were more likely to take their medications. Who knows what it was? But we know that management of, of anxiety um, not only makes your quality of life better, but it also actually decreases the activity of your MS is what it seems like. So developing those routines too to manage stress and anxiety can be really important. Um, and then just the, the last one here as we talk about healthy habits is diet, which I think is one of the questions we get most commonly is, okay, great, what should I eat? Um, taking the pills seems obvious. Okay, I put out 99% of everything else I put in, in my mouth must affect the course of the disease. And so there's kind of two sides to this. One is we don't have a clear answer in 2023 on what the MS diet is. We know for heart health, what's a good diet. We know for some other stuff, for digestive health, because there's been good quality long-term studies on it. For MS, we don't have that data yet because scientifically, at least there haven't been enough high-quality studies on this. There's actually just an article that was published in one of our big journals in neurology last month that actually pulled together all of the studies that have ever been done on diet and nutrition MS to see if, okay, each individual study didn't get us to a conclusion, but what if you put all of them together and did an analysis? And what they found was a few things. One, none of the studies is good enough to be reliable. We need bigger studies that are better. And two, even when you pull the data, there's nothing obvious that comes out of it. There was a suggestion that the Mediterranean diet or certain versions of the paleo diet might be better than the average American diet, but not even enough proof to show that, which I think shows you how much we need more study. So my recommendation for, for you know, my patients is have a thoughtful, good, healthy diet, you know, have a good mix of vegetables and good nutrition high quality proteins, um, you know, making sure that you're using the best ingredients you can, really reducing processed foods as much as you can. You know, the things that contribute to a heart healthy diet, like we talked about the hypertension, whatever, probably contribute to a brain healthy diet too. And so, you know, stay tuned because I think there's gonna be much more research that's going to show us a little bit more about what kinds of diets are positive for inflammation. And there's also a lot of um, information we can probably borrow from, let's say, people who have lupus and other inf inflammatory diseases. But so far, there's no clear answer. So I think just eating a good, high quality diet, reducing junk foods and processed foods is probably the best scientific advice I can give these days. Um, but doing a, a diet that's um, that is uh, healthy and that you can maintain long term. So, uh, long story short, you know, if you're young and you're getting diagnosed, really invest in lifetime good practices early because you have to start building the habits you know it's harder to build a new habit into your life when you're 50 or 60 it's really hard and so when you're 20 or 30 take advantage of that period of your life where you're you're going through transformations you're still figuring out your plans to really invest in yourself good eating good exercise taking care of yourself managing your mood um and focusing on on developing like a meaningful road for your life Thank you, Dr. Mogavin, for addressing important topics for young adults living with multiple sclerosis. You gave us great tips. And our last question, and you already touched base on this, but just la one last time, what is your advice for any young adult who's listening to us today 
and has been living with MS or recently received the diagnosis of MS? Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, I think the, the best tips I can give are this. One is, um, this is probably really scary and probably leads you to a lot of uncertainty for the future in yourself. I think my message to you is you're going to be okay. You know, you um, don't need to change your dreams. You can still have whatever you want out of your life. Um, and you're in control of that. So I think the key to making sure that you still have the ability to achieve what you want to in life, to have the relationships you want to have, maybe have the occupation you want to have, maybe have the family you want to have, is really in your control. And that means, you know, really taking the initiative for yourself and advocating sometimes for yourself because the medical system requires you to advocate a lot for yourself, unfortunately, um, to make sure you're on the right medications, to make sure you're doing the life right lifestyle choices. You know, I think what's going to be key to do those things, you know, one I mentioned is have an ally or a cheerleader or a friend or family member, somebody that you can rely on to keep you accountable. I, I found, you know, that people who have that really do well because sometimes you need it. Um, the other part of that is having a care partner. And I think, you know, you mentioned this before, but have an MS specialist neurologist that you know and trust and appreciate. And um, I know that in some parts of the country, it can be really hard to find. Um, but do what you can to find a neurologist specifically, if you can, MS trained, who's up on the current literature, who understands you and your priorities and your dreams. Um because that's going to make a lot of the difference too, as you try to share what your priorities are to try to achieve them. And then the other part of that is I'm somebody who's telling you about, I don't live with MS. You know, I don't really know what that's like. Um, I, you know, I say some of my closest friends of, I mean, everyone I see, you know, on a daily basis lives with it, but that doesn't mean that I really know. And so I think um, developing communities of other people who live with MS is going to give you an invaluable insight into um, tips and tricks that your doctor isn't going to be able to give you, um, perspectives and approaches. And I think, you know, we'll also give you a community when you're having moments of uncertainty. And so whether that's through the MSAA or whether it's through the National MS Society or whether your local MS center has its own sort of groups, I think joining those can be super, super helpful. You know, I think there are virtual communities as well, Facebook, Reddit. I mean, a lot of these places have virtual communities. Those are mixed. I would tell you, like, join those. I think you're going to learn a lot. But also just, you know, remember there's a whole lot of nonsense on some of those too. So use your brain, you know, be skeptical if you see something that doesn't make total sense. And also then, you know, use your MS doc or your support community to bounce ideas off of as well. Um so, you know, again, I think my, my tips, figure out what you want to do with your life, chase those dreams, but be in control of your MS. That's going to be the key part, you know, stay healthy, find the cheerleaders in your life, whether it's your doctor, your friends, your family, an MS community. And hopefully all of that allows you to just retain hope and an understanding that you're going to be fine. And you, you might have relapses, you might have some really bad days. But it's going to give you the skills to be kind to yourself. I think what's what's hard sometimes for folks, especially if you're a really go, go, go person, is if you have an attack or you have a bad fatigue day or something like that, on top of just feeling bad, you then also might feel guilty about feeling bad. And I think if you really 
develop a life where you have the support structure around you, where you understand you're in control of your MS, it makes it a little bit easier to be kind to yourself on those days and to just sort of know that it's okay to take a break um, and uh, that it doesn't mean you screwed up or anything. So that's sort of my general message. Um, you know, I think this is a disease we're getting better and better and better at treating and understanding and um, you're going to be all right. Thank you. That was motivating and inspiring. So it's important to highlight that with knowledge, healthy habits, finding a support system, feeling empowered to practice self-advocacy and treatment adherence, there is hope for people living with MS and there is hope for living well with MS. Know that you're not alone and MSAA offers services and support to help you as you navigate this journey. With this, we conclude our podcast, Young Adults Living with Multiple Sclerosis. On behalf of MSAA, I would like to thank Dr. Mogavin once again for his valuable knowledge and insights in addressing topics that are so important and meaningful to young adults living with multiple sclerosis. Your advice brought hope and motivation to anyone out there living with MS or caring for someone who is actually living with MS. Also, I would like to thank Gradwell House Recording for hosting us today and producing this program. Please know that this podcast, along with additional information on multiple sclerosis, services, and resources, can be found at mymsa.org. Once again, take care and thank you for listening. 